0: Hi there, it's Matt here and welcome back to this third episode all about sleep, infants, children and teens. And welcome back to my dear friend and outstanding guest, Dr. Craig Canapari, who is the director of the Pediatric Sleep Center at Yale Medical School. And today, we're going to move further along the age range. We've spoken a lot about infants so far. Today, we're going to focus on children. Children in this context for sleep, really, I think, Craig, and correct me if I'm wrong, we're sort of covering the age from one-year-old up to 10 years old. And during that transition across those years from, you know, one-year-old to 10 years old, Firstly, tell me, what are the major challenges that a child is going to have to face during that period? And also, what are the major changes that will happen to the sleep of that child?
1: So in general, the theme of shorter sleep overall is going to continue. So a toddler typically sleep between 11 and 14 hours in a 24-hour period. It is typical for a child at a year of age to be taking either one or two naps. By 15 months of age, most children are just taking one nap, and then that nap will be given up sometime before age five, typically. In the preschool age group, say ages three to five, the sleep range is 10 to 13 hours of sleep. And by school age, say elementary school, nine to 11 hours of sleep is fairly typical, Children that age generally should not be napping. Starting school is obviously a pretty significant milestone. And interestingly, when kids go from preschool to kindergarten, it's enough of a leveling up for them that sometimes some sleep issues that were lingering just tend to get better. Mm -hmm. Another big thing is actually that sometime in the period between ages two and four years of age, most children will stop sleeping in a crib and start sleeping in a bed So imagine someone, the judgment of a three-year-old, just wandering your house at night. Something, obviously, you want to avoid if you can.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Not ideal by any uh, stretch of the imagination. It's so helpful to sort of understand how those milestones will occur. But let's come back within the individual on any one particular night. We know, as I've discussed on this show before, this notion of chronotypes, that there's morning types, evening types, and neutrals somewhere in between. And we've said that that's, you know, strongly genetic and therefore it's gifted to you at birth. And we also know that you can see some of that chronotypeness in children, knowing of course, that earlier when we're younger, we're typically going to bed earlier and waking up earlier, despite sometimes us wanting to stay awake with the adults. And then gradually as we progress in time, we move forward in time. We go to bed later. We wake up later. But morningness and eveningness within any one age range, you can still see it. But what you've written about in your book is something that overlays a top of this, which is bedtime and the influence of bedtime regarding the amount of sleep a child gets, because of course, when it comes to sleep in children and infants and teens, one of the biggest concerns is, is my child getting enough sleep? And you've spoken about how important bedtime is. Help me understand why it's so important and what the dangers are that could be nested within the timing of bed for children. And maybe even if there's any academic consequences to that.
1: This is so important for parents to understand. And I'd say that, as you know, circadian preferences do exist and are clear in this age group. However, before puberty, sleep duration for most kids is determined by when they go to bed, meaning that your average school-age kid, they're the ones waking you up in the morning as a parent. And I'd say that is generally true from infancy through adolescence. So you may not like if your child is getting up at say 5.30 in the morning, but if you want that child to sleep more, you are going to have much more success with an earlier bedtime than trying to get them to stay asleep longer. I always explain to parents if you may be able to teach your child to stay in the room longer and not wake you up, but they actually can control when they wake up in the morning. It's like if I said to you, Matt, I'm going to give you a million dollars, but you have to wake up exactly at 8.07 tomorrow. (laughs) Like, it's just not something that you can control. It's not an actual offer, by the way.
0: Don't worry. Even if you did offer it, I would fail that test. uh, Totally. Everybody would. A sponsor of today's show is Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker is a service, and they come to your home, as they do for me and they will analyze your blood and your DNA to know precisely what is happening inside of you regarding a host of different blood and metabolic and hormonal health metrics. What I also like is that in addition to the results, they then provide you with a personalized set of recommended, I guess, sort of lifestyle changes and suggestions to better optimize your health as a consequence of what those results were for you, that unique snowflake. So you can use the link insidetracker.com forward slash Matt Walker, and you will get a healthy discount from your purchase. So again, that is insidetracker.com forward slash MattWalker.
1: When parents have bedtime struggles in this age group, and again, this is a huge range developmentally, you're starting with someone who's learning to walk, and then, you know, you could have a 10-year-old who knows how to write computer programs, right? So there's a big range here. But regardless, throughout that range, some parents will really be struggling at bedtime. And one of the important things to recognize is if they're in what's called the circadian forbidden zone. I believe it was the scientist peretz Lavie that coined this phrase. And the way I explain it to parents is, if you've ever put your child to bed at eight o'clock and lie down with her to fall asleep, and you're like, man, I'm really tired. I could go to bed now. And you get up and all of a sudden you've been watching Netflix for three hours and folding laundry. And you're like, I am wide awake. You are in the middle of that circadian forbidden zone. Some people call it a second wind. So, you know, when we think about behavioral interventions for kids, often we want to find a bedtime where they're not fighting with their parents. My colleague, Monica Ordway, had this wonderful insight. When your child starts to act crazy at night, their bedtime should be like 15 minutes before that. Like when they're really mm, disinhibited, okay. they're like running around outside and you're trying to grab Bouncing them. off the walls. It's like, yeah. Yeah. You probably want to have a bedtime that's a little bit earlier, or a little bit later than that. A good rule of thumb for school age kids you can't go wrong with a bedtime between 7.30 and 8.30. And there's actually a couple of great studies about this. There's a Scottish study from 2013 that looked at the relationship between bedtime regularity and timing at ages 3, 5, and 7, and found that the consistency of bedtime, meaning that bedtime didn't move around a lot, and the bedtime being earlier than 9 o'clock, was highly predictive of scholastic ability at age 7. And there was actually wow. another study wow. that was just published this year, looking at the regularity of sleep. So again, not seeing a lot of movement between when children are going to bed and when they're waking up day to day, and their sleep duration being greater than ten hours were predictive of kindergarten success in terms of socio-emotional learning engagement and academic domains. So really, this so is a very
0: that study the, the two influential ingredients, as I recall, it's. Regularity, again, which I've mentioned before on this program is king just for adults, but it's the same as true there. And in that study, regularity and, however, also sleep duration, and there it was above 10 hours, that was predictive of basically the kindergarten success outcomes that you mentioned, those two things combined. That's what you were describing, correct?
1: And we know too that consistency is such an important part of sleep hygiene.
0: Which consequently means also longer duration of sleep too. So one begets the other.
1: It isn't rocket science. I know, Matt, you do amazing stuff in your lab, but-
0: <laughs> Oh, don't say that. No, I'm kidding you. Don't worry, Craig.
1: But when you think about like the impact of just being like, you know what, hey guys, go to the bed at the same time every night and allow yourself an appropriate <laughs> sleep opportunity. If you get those two things right as a human being, your sleep is going to be pretty decent. I think it's important to know too that sleep is really a health equity issue. And here's what I mean by that. There's a sleep epidemiologist at SUNY Stony Brook who said, named Lauren Hale, and she said once, and I never forgot this, she's like, sleep disparities are caused by and also perpetuate socioeconomic adversity. And mm-hmm. in my world, one of my close collaborators colleagues, Monica Ordway, is a researcher over at the nursing school. And she's been following this cohort of socioeconomically disadvantaged children. She's found that these kids, tend to have short sleep duration, a late bedtime, and high bedtime variability. These children who, for various reasons, their families were really struggling to get these details right. And it's not because they don't want to get them right, but there are issues that many families take for granted, but other families may struggle with having a separate sleeping surface for a child, living in a place without noise pollution or light pollution, which can affect sleep or even parents who are working second shift and picking a child up at a grandparent's house at midnight to bring them home, or alternatively, not having childcare and needing to leave for an early shift. Like I have a number of parents who are bus drivers who have to take their kids and leave the house at 4.30 in the morning because they don't have anyone to watch their kids.
0: unbelievable.
1: The downstream consequence of this is these kids are going to tend to struggle a little bit more in school and perpetuates the cycle of disadvantage When we think about sleep from a public health standpoint, it's important to remember that like we also, as a society, need to create structures that allow children to sleep just like we need to provide clean water and healthy food for children.
0: Yeah, I've often said sleep is a biological necessity, and I think it is a civil right of all individuals. But of course, if you look at the data, both in adults and children, The socioeconomic disparities are right there within the sleep data as well in all of the ways that you would desperately wish them not to be. So I want to switch gears a little bit. I feel as though I want to get your input I think what we've been trying to do here in all of these episodes is dampen down some of the fires and allow parents to not get so anxious, not get so worried, know that sleep for the most part will take care of itself, that there are some simple things just as you describe, Regularity, the right sleep opportunity, it's almost like the 80-20 principle rule. Do that 20% of everything that you could do right and you get 80% of the weight there. Don't worry about that. But I do think that there are some things that parents should be concerned about. There are some red flags there in terms of what a parent may be observing in their child and why it is a red flag. Could you say a little bit about if parents are observing something in their child, what could they be observing that is a red flag and when would it need to be addressed clinically? Help me better understand that and help parents understand that.
1: Absolutely. The first I would say is, and this, again, recognizing this is a broad age range, but if you're needing to get your child up out of bed, like you're needing to wake up your preschooler or elementary schooler, that is usually a red flag to me that either the child is getting insufficient sleep or that there is something fragmenting the child's sleep. And we can talk a little bit about some of the disorders that can do that in a moment. Also, elementary schoolers that are falling asleep in school, they're falling asleep on short car trips. A lot of kids are going to fall asleep if you're driving to grandma's on Thanksgiving and it's a three-hour trip. But if you're driving your kid to the grocery store and they're falling asleep, that suggests that there may be a significant degree of sleepiness. Additionally, children that are having issues with behavioral regulation, that can be a manifestation of insufficient sleep or fragmented sleep.
0: And when you say behavioral regulation, you mean really quite dramatic emotional changes or anxieties or fearful behaviors what would be those affective changes?
1: I would say like hyperactivity. The school is very helpful for this to get the feedback from parents because look, your kid's going to be a jerk to you at home sometimes, even if they're perfectly healthy and sleeping amazingly well. But in other contexts, if they can't regulate their behavior, let's say that all the six-year-olds can sit down at circle time, but you're hearing every day from your child's teacher that your child is running around, being disruptive in context where the other children aren't, you know, recognizing that every child is entitled to have an off day. I think that gets my attention as well. And often that sleep problems can manifest more as hyperactivity, though those kids will tend to be sleepy in tedious situations, right? There was a guy at Stanford, I'm blanking on his name, Matt. He's always said that tedium unmasks sleepiness. So you know,
0: it's Raphael. Raphael Platton. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And that's very true. I also think kids that have significant separation anxiety at bedtime, if you've got an eight-year-old that's still sleeping in your bed and cries when you leave the room, that's probably something that's worth working on and addressing. In terms of medical disorders, I wanted to flag snoring. I would say throughout childhood, if your child snores loudly every night, it is worth getting them checked out because obstructive sleep apnea, which is a common condition where... The upper airway may collapse periodically during the night and cause sleep disruption is incredibly common.
0: I just want to double click on this. You know, we often think of snoring as we get older, thinking about grandparents or my grandparents snore all the time or, you know, people getting older. What we don't realize is how common snoring and obstructive sleep apnea can be in the pediatric setting. So I'm so glad you brought that up.
1: I'm going to throw out some numbers for you. It has a prevalence of 3 to 5% of children, which doesn't sound like a lot, but given the fact that most children won't have any medical problems, that's fairly common. In children that are obese, it's the prevalence of 25%. And if they're obese and they snore, it's 50% prevalence. So it's quite common. In the age group we're talking about, the usual driver for it is enlargement of the tonsils and the adenoids. So this is lymphoid tissue. You can see the tonsils in the back of someone's throat. The adenoid, they look like these big meatballs. The adenoid is similar and sits in the back of the nose. And, you know, often either medical treatment or surgical treatment to address the size of those is curative. In my standpoint, we didn't even get to talk about polysomnography, which is sleep testing. I love sleep testing. I run our labs, but if I've got a healthy four-year-old who's snoring loudly, I just send them to the ear, nose, and throat surgeon to have their tonsils out. I don't think the sleep test is necessary.
0: The other supporter of this podcast is the electrolyte drink company called Element. Now, it's actually four letters, L-M-N-T. I am a bit of an exercise fanatic, and I started buying their products some years ago, really, because of two key facts. First is the lack of sugar content. Element has no sugar. It also has no colorings, no artificial ingredients, which is unlike many of the other mixes out there that I was shopping. The second is because of the founders who have some serious years of biochemistry experience under their belts, and they know what they're doing. So if you want to give it a try, just go to drinklmnt.com forward slash Matt Walker, and you will get eight free sample packs on any order that you place. Once again, that is drinklmnt.com forward slash Matt Walker.
1: Two other things I want to just, to use your parlance, double click on here would be restless leg disorder, which tends to emerge in this age group. And that's a, a sensory phenomenon of leg discomfort that gets worse in the evening, improves with movement and interferes with sleep onset. Those are the four criteria you need for diagnosis in an adult. In a child, you don't always get all of them. But the reason this is extra important is because if a child has a blood iron marker called ferritin that is in the low normal range, we treat these kids with iron. They just get better. Most of the time, they don't need any medication beyond that.
0: Is it usually an iron infusion that you're talking about there, if that's the case?
1: We probably only need to do infusion in a child with like celiac disease or something like that, where their ability to absorb iron is really impaired, which is uncommon. And I just wanted to mention too, a a close cousin of restless leg disorder is a newly described disorder called restless sleep disorder. It was uh, described by Lourdes Del Rosso and her group in Seattle. And this is kind of like restless leg, but instead of restless leg... Patients will have these leg movements in the sleep laboratory called periodic movements of sleep. They look like these rhythmic kicks. Restless sleep disorder is where children are just flopping around all over the bed. Parents will describe their kid is almost like if you took a fish threw it in your boat and it's flopping around, that's what their kid's sleep looks like. And that also seems to respond to iron therapy as well. Uh, And obviously don't just start your kid on iron talk to your pediatrician if you have these concerns, but these are problems that can be diagnosed and treated.
0: And the last thing I wanted to come on to for this episode, we spoke about sleep training and the cry it out method being the lightning rod topic in infants. I think the one in children, if it exists is melatonin. You and I have both been on public record speaking a great deal about melatonin you and i have both mind belted offline regarding pediatric use of melatonin tell me about melatonin in children its escalation rise what we've seen over the past 10 years in terms of the increase and also how should we think about overdose rates and safety concerns
1: so melatonin is produced in your brain and it's the hormone of darkness it is certainly a part of our circadian physiology, you can also purchase it for ingestion. And What has really changed, I'd say in the last 10 years especially, is the fact that melatonin is practically taking up an aisle in your pharmacy at this point. And I'm only exaggerating a little bit here. Often there are combination preparations for colds that contain melatonin in them. And many parents who are struggling with their child's sleep will tend to reach for melatonin with the perception that it's natural. They've got these great gummies at the drugstore. And melatonin does have a place in my clinical practice. For example, in children with autism, it's one of the few things that's been extensively studied to help with issues with sleep. And sometimes we use it in children who don't have autism as well. But here's the key. If you're using melatonin or any pharmaceutical, for that matter, for sleep, to recognize that You should be using it as part of a package of behavioral interventions to improve your sleep and have a plan to minimize or get rid of the dose after a certain period of time. I think, Matt, you're referencing a study that came out earlier this year that got your and my attention. The problem is in 2020, melatonin became the most frequently accidentally ingested supplement for children and led to a huge number of poison control calls, and in some very rare situations, hospitalizations, ICU stays. And this study actually reported two deaths, which I think were the first reported deaths associated with melatonin. I would say that melatonin used and dosed appropriately is very safe. The problem is, because this is regulated by the FDA as a food supplement, there are very few guardrails in terms of this, in terms of product labeling for example, for a small child who would never use more than three milligrams, but you can buy a 10 milligram gummy for your child. And you can't tell me that a 10 oh, yeah. milligram gummy is intended for an adult. And I think if I have a take home for parents, I would say that if you're struggling with your child's sleep, even if you've been using melatonin, just please work with your pediatrician to make sure that you're using an appropriate dose that you're actually putting in place a behavioral plan, which long-term is going to be more effective for you anyway in helping your child with sleep success, and recognize that even though it is quote-unquote natural, it is not totally benign.
0: And I know that folks, if they are melatonin curious for their child, there is a lot of information on your website that they can go to to dive in ever deeper. Craig, thank you. For this episode we will draw this one to a close but next time we're going to finish the final installment in this series and we're going to focus on teens craig thank you so much folks go and visit craig over at drcraigcanapari.com. that information will be in the show notes and we will see you in the next episode so until then take care and goodbye for now